Hi, my friends who listen to Future Primitive. Uh, today I'm sitting with Jacob, Jacob Amon, our new partner in a beautiful place at the top of a mountain with Eleanor, Helena Norbert Hodge. She is the founder and director of Local Futures, a non-profit organization dedicated to the strengthening of local communities and economies worldwide. Author of Ancient Futures, a book about tradition and change in the Himalayan region of Ladakh, she's a leading proponent of localization as an antidote to the problem arising from globalization and founded the International Alliance for Localization. Helena produced and co-directed the award-winning documentary film The Economics of Happiness, which lays out her arguments against economic globalization and for localization. Helena lives in Australia and is currently today beginning a tour of the United States in Santa Fe, New Mexico. We actually attended a three-day conference that was really amazing. And I want to ask Helena, would you like to open by uh, telling us about your feelings and thoughts about your first stop? Well, we we had uh, one of our Economics of Happiness conferences here, and we are always so heartened by the way that this vision and this message is an invitation to a broad range of of groups and individuals. And I felt that happened here in Santa Fe as well. We believe that we urgently need to present a really holistic, uh, what I call big picture, that would allow a whole range of individuals and groups who have been focused on a particular issue to come together. And so what we're providing is a a sort of a clear analysis of how a deregulated global economic system is responsible for almost every problem we face. It's it's quite remarkable when you when you look at it from that bigger picture you also have to go back historically and see that this is a system that started with slavery and colonialism and um and then you see through that, you know, the impoverished, impoverished third world and the rich world were created, and and all the time what's been happening is that place-based communities and cultures have ended up supporting the giant traders, the giant banks and traders, mm-hmm. and really without knowing it. And so I feel there's a, a huge amount to be gained by people waking up to this, uh, because as I said, Really, uh, virtually everyone who voted for Trump, as well as people who see themselves as so-called progressive, I'm convinced that most would agree with us if they simply understood why it is we need to change from a more globalized economy towards more localized economies, plural. We all have so much to gain by doing that. I'm... 
I never do this, but I'm interrupting you because I was so excited when you spoke at the conference because you actually took the guilt yes. off of the everyday yes. person. Yes. And and what we do out of guilt, you told yes. us, what we do out of guilt, we're not going to do no. with the necessary impetus in love. No. So if you talk about that. Yes. Well, I guess, first of all, my eyes were opened to this by seeing this very dramatic impact on people who were so spiritually attuned and attuned with Mother Gaia, attuned with one another, you know, a traditional ancient Tibetan culture high on on the Tibetan plateau, um, where the whole way of life was extremely harmonious extremely healthy uh, you know people were uh, radiantly healthy there was there was no obesity and there was no hunger there was just a vibrant health which also translated into an incredible joie de vivre and i saw very clearly how the combination of ideas promoted through western style schooling through advertising through the media and so on created a loss of self-esteem and a, a loss of self-respect in, in a dramatic way, and how it also perverted, you know, in, in children the need to be recognized and loved into a need to consume. But I've, I've also, from having studied that in non-Western cultures, because I should also mention I wrote a book about this big conflict between this global economy coming in and the more localized economy there, and the, and that means also between a genuinely human culture mm. versus what we really shouldn't call a culture. The, the consumer system that's being imposed on us really shouldn't carry the term culture because culture is what evolved out of a dialogue between humans and nature over many, many, in many cases, millennia. And so we had this rich diversity of cultures because it was a human dialogue with the natural world and and we are and every bit of life is diverse and unique and we're unique from moment to moment so this is a a deadly system that came in I saw uh, I I saw this in Ladakh I also worked in Bhutan over a five year period and then I wrote a book that was translated it's called Ancient Futures and it was translated into almost 50 languages and from all around the world I was told Oh, what you're telling there is our story too. That same system destroyed our relationships, our intergenerational communities, our harmony with the natural world, our more harmonious relationship with the plants and animals and so on. And from that, I it took me a few years to actually see that the same thing was going on in the West. Um, but I, I sort of having my eyes open to this impact, as I said, of the schooling, the media, all our avenues of knowledge. And then I, I realized that with things like eating addictions and so on, there was no voice there telling people, well, in cultures where this global system hasn't come, these illnesses don't exist. Instead, what was happening was that when a, a, a child would have an eating disorder, perhaps starve herself to death, the mother would usually be blamed by the psychologist, the doctor, the counselor, all saying, you were too concerned with your weight. The bigger picture 
where these poor mothers could have realized that this isn't, was not their creation and that could have liberated them, uh, first of all, to be working on changing what's causing it, you know, mm-hmm. rather than blaming themselves. It wasn't, wasn't available. So, and I see this just across the board. Uh, there's been a, a terrible way, for instance, that the average Western consumer has been blamed for climate change and essentially told, you know, it's your greedy habits, you know, you don't want to get rid of your car, you know, and if you want to solve this problem and, you know, change your light bulbs and don't go on holiday and don't get into an airplane. And it's been absolutely terrible because that's been happening while we've had this huge transformation of the economy where big business has moved to so-called poor countries to manufacture virtually everything we need and even a great deal of the food we get in the Western industrialized countries is coming from you know the poor countries. Mm-hmm. And with that transformation, the energy consumption has escalated dramatically. And that means CO2 emissions because of the way production changed, not because of the way that we consumers were behaving. So I really feel this bigger picture is a very important message because once we understand better in a systemic way what's going on, it's so clear that localizing economic activity has these incredible and numerous benefits. And, and you know, it, it has to do with regaining a sense of healthier identity, which is vital for our children, but even for us as adults. Mm-hmm. It has to do with dramatically reducing energy consumption and packaging, you know, along with it. So the mountains of plastic and so on are there because big business needed that to keep things on the shelf for months and years, to transport things across the world, uh, and, and, and. So I can (laughs) talk endlessly about it. So during uh, your lecture, you mentioned uh, that after Berlusconi uh, left, this five-star political party in Italy has risen up, and it's um, not very well known in in America, as was evidenced by the number of people that knew it at the conference. Were you equally impressed with uh, Bernie Sanders' campaign and the message and uh, the political movement that happened even though there was a lot of uh, challenges that he and, and the people like me who worked on it came up against. Were you uh, impressed by that, or what did you feel about that movement? I feel that we should all remember to be incredibly inspired and hopeful because of that. You know, it's easy to forget and to think, oh, well, Trump won. But we should really remember, remember the number of people, especially young people, and the power that was behind that. And we have to keep that flame alive. And I think maybe learn from Five Star to approach it differently. I mean, I I believe now that transforming the Bernie Sanders campaign into something that doesn't carry the name Democrat could be a huge step forward. And I think we should be careful also not to label it green because we need to reach people who are feeling absolutely disempowered, totally marginalized, have have their jobs destroyed, 
and they are ending up blaming, with the help also of a corporate media, they're blaming everything but the corporations. They're blaming themselves, they're blaming the other, they're blaming the immigrants, they're blaming especially the left and the green and big government, which they see as a big problem, and that's why they then end up voting neoliberal. Yeah. So I think there's a, there's a, a lot that could be gained, and, and I think that momentum mustn't be allowed to die but as I say, I would like to see it transformed into you know, a civic society movement that identifies corporate rule as the problem and that is saying to people, <clears throat> we can rebuild healthy economies in which you will have a meaningful role and a meaningful livelihood. Well, you see, I, I think that the greatest toxic... Uh, the greatest toxic situation in this world is not um, it's not gasoline, it's shame. Mm. And corporations sell to the people's shame. I mean, I'm one of them. I don't do as much about recycling or whatever it is. I've just identified it talking, talking with you and in the last two days of the conference. It's uh, shame doesn't motivate me at all. Shame only motivates me to buy cosmetics. <laughs> yes, although I think, again, keep in mind that as far as I'm concerned, the problem isn't that we're not willing to change. I think the problem is that we've been asked to change in a way that is absurd and ridiculous. We, we've been told... And this has been very much uh, increasing with the rise of corporate power in this globalizing era, which globalization has been about deregulating and giving more power to global traders and banks. In that same period, the environmental and social movements changed their message away from saying, we want to see policy change. We realize that collectively, it's amazing what we could do to get off fossil fuels rapidly and to have decentralized renewables. It's, and that's what we demanded back in the 60s and 70s. At that point, we were demanding policy change. We have to be really aware of what happened in the last 30 years, which has been suddenly, if you care about the environment, well, buy this more expensive environmental product. And it's up to you as an individual. This has been, that's been the major shift so what does that do? It creates a situation where the same corporate think tanks that have influenced thinking in the environmental movement also turn around and say these people who do buy the solar cells and who do buy the organic local food are elitist. And this is simply an elitist movement and shame on them. You know, So they're getting this message, if you care about the environment, do this. And then at the same time they're being told that they're, you know, elitist and uh, and that it's all ridiculous and that if you really care about the poor then you would also be willing to eat toxic corporate food you know so there's, there's such a sea of ideas that oh, are perverting our thinking it's so but, complicated yeah. it well it's complicated but actually I mean I, I just wish that uh, we could in my organization in my network create more materials with visuals because it's not that complicated it's really simple but the big big problem is to try to say to people you have been intellectually duped okay. you have been cornered and manipulated 
and you have not been conscious of that. And I think the only reason why I have sort of had this perspective is because I was outside of the Western world. Every year, I would be six months at least away, and then I'd come back, and I would see this shift. And it it took me many years to understand why is it my friends and colleagues don't see it. And then I realized it is very much like the aunt who goes away and her 15-year-old nephew, uh, you know, is whatever, six foot tall or something, or not yet, but she comes back half a year later and says, oh my God, have you grown? And the mother who had to buy new clothes and who knew he had grown just wasn't that aware of how enormous the shift is. So there's this awareness does grow with this coming in and out of different cultures and situations. Um, I do see a willingness now for people to really try to understand that bigger picture, and I'm so hoping it's going to spread, because it's quite simple. And and it's so much more positive to see it this way, because the dominant uh, message is, it's our fault, we don't care, Mm -hmm. and the human race deserves to extinguish itself. And let's bring in some robots that are going to be kinder and wiser. Yeah. In the the permaculture movement, um, which I've been a part of for the last 10 years or so, and I also did organic farming as a uh, young man for about 10 years, um, one thing that I kind of uh, realized was that um, people, when they're participating in a local economy and, you know, interacting with people in their community that they're supporting uh, naturally do want to spend more and support them so that they can survive and have livelihood. So versus this kind of, again, coming from this this place of shame or guilt and not supporting, you know, uh, people around you. If you're actually like, uh, I don't remember if it was you or with Nana LeDuc that mentioned that uh, people look at each other and talk to each other so much more at a farmer's market versus, uh, you know, a, yeah, a store. Yeah. And stores now are becoming robotic as well, yeah, and we're losing yeah. all of the human contact Absolutely. there. Absolutely. So, um, again, I don't know if I have a question as much as... Well, I, I actually have a comment go. on that, because, again, you're slightly hinting uh-huh. at this idea which the food movement has been putting out, which is that if we care about the farmers and we care about healthy food, we should be willing to pay more for it. I don't like that idea. Uh I wanted us, and I've tried to get that message out for 40 years, to be saying, wait a minute, I don't want my taxes subsidizing Monsanto. I don't want them subsidizing a corporate infrastructure. I don't want to, you know, it's... Because when we argue, you know, that really you should be willing to pay more, that's exactly what the corporate think tanks have encouraged. Because again, that means, you know, the people who can afford to pay more should be willing to pay more for a healthy environment. It turns out that growing things naturally is vastly, vastly more efficient. We could have absolutely, you know, flourishing farms and ecosystems and meaningful work. The problem is we have to look at what does the model look like? You know, you take one society where you pump it full of fossil fuels with giant businesses, people become an appendage to the needs of those corporations and to the technologies they use. 
inside that system with the high price of labor, but also a highly manipulated system, the toxic food processed three times over, packaged three times over, sent around the world three times, sometimes honestly, arrives in every local market at a lower price. This is because of an economic system that is a lie. It is an utter crime against humanity. As an economic system, I mean, I've said it before, you know, we should have locked it away. We should have realized it's a danger to society. should have been in prison and locked away many generations ago. Absolutely crazy. But the way it's succeeded in keeping us going is through making us feel insecure, shame, but also lots of false messages of where we can solve things and how we can do things better. Mm. I would encourage people who can afford to, to pay more to do so, but I don't think that that should be the main thing. I would almost rather that they would put the money that they might spend, if, it's a, if it is a lot more expensive, into a fund to support the bigger transformation. You know, like even, say, in the Santa Fe area, it would probably be better for everybody if instead of spending more money on organic food, they put it into a fund to create much more local organic growing here and help with the infrastructure and raise awareness to get many more people on board mm-hmm. so that we can also start saying no to the policies that push this. It's basically forced trade, free trade. It's forced on us, and these products are dumped in our local economies and destroy destroy our local economies. Yeah. yeah. And um, I've, the first farm I worked on was a large CSA farm, and I, at the peak of our <clears throat> CSA, we had, I think, 90 people a week, families and individuals who were coming out and doing a work trade. So it was like four hours of their week. They got a large amount of food. And it was, I mean, I still believe that CSAs, I don't know how you feel about CSAs. I think they're one of the most effective and powerful. um, And we were just talking to Mark downstairs about... Matt Kelly. uh, Yeah, about... um, uh, that kind of model for healthcare as well. Absolutely, regular, yeah. you know, family paying regular monthly Absolutely. tithe to the Absolutely. to the um, healthcare professional. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, is that CSA still going? See, uh, yeah, that one is. That yeah. one is open. Yeah, that was one of the first yeah. ones in the Seattle area where I grew up. And, oh, um, oh, okay, good. Because yeah. generally speaking, my you know my experience is that the local food initiatives tend to continue and thrive and grow and and it is the most successful antidote to this toxic system uh, for sure and and I just really hope we encourage the listeners to really participate and support but above all the support that's needed is financial support and awareness raising for movement building it's you know it isn't we have to get out of this idea that the way I'm going to support it is to just buy local that's a um, I was exposed to slow money pretty early on by yeah. one of the initial investors who I used to work for, <clears throat> and he's probably listening to this because he loves you. Huh. Um, and uh, they uh, they had large, um, pe- you know, people with large visions for lar- you know um, distribution of of regional food. And I think um, from what I've heard, uh, a lot of those proposals didn't happen. They no. really tried to target. You know, people that were um, um, keeping it 
super local and really putting a lot back into the soil. I mean, that's a huge part of their thing is converting money into healthy soil. Yeah. You know? um, are there other uh, movements like Slow Money around the world that are, are doing the same thing? Well, there aren't, I mean, not the same thing in terms of the financing, uh -huh. but there are other movements that are very clear about the need to support local and, decent and decentralized. But when I say movements, you know, it is actually, I call it a global local food movement, but what it is is a patchwork of literally millions, I would say, of initiatives that start reconnecting over shorter distances, yeah. not always some absolute local, you know, it can be longer distances than that, but there's a, a reconnection between consumers and production, and there's nothing wrong with a nice shop in between. Some of the arguments have been that we want to eliminate the middleman. No, the shop is a wonderful mm -hmm. instrument. We want to eliminate the giant middleman, which we don't even see, you know, there's this invisible hand. But once you start getting that chain of connections between um, the raw materials and the Yeah, the shop is where a lot of value shop, added yeah, comes in. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and so there are lots and lots of initiatives and uh, some very exciting things. I think it's in the UK too. I love a model too with a CSA where the people who are better off uh, put some extra money in to yeah. then allow people who, who can't afford it, you know, to buy yeah. it at a much lower price. Um, what I also really like is I'm seeing a lot of emphasis now on trying to create training institutions, you know, where... Incubation people, centers. And yeah, and, and also actually, you know, sort of new farming schools. I hope that they are aware of the need to understand the market, to understand, again, that we need to be looking at it holistically. Because the relationship between the market and production is what's in the global market disastrous. It cannot work. It can never support healthy because it's far too big. It's not to do with bad people and good people. It's to do with bad structures and good structures. Mm. And and what what is... I think important to realize is that these structures are inhuman. They are inhuman. They, they, there isn't, you know, a human eye and intelligence that really is seeing the impact across the thing. That's why it's so evil and so, uh, you know, destructive as a system. But I think understanding that is also very important because otherwise we might battle away to just get good people into the same institutions. And that certainly doesn't work. Because there are some good people in some of these big corporations. Very rarely do they want to address that these corporations need to shrink in size. That's yeah. a difficulty for sure. Which is why I also feel the great hope lies from the bottom up. Um, more, when I say the bottom up, I think the middle class in particular needs to play a leading role in, in contributing either through volunteerism or finance, to build this, uh, this movement. Once again, this brings me back to the matter of dignity. Mm. A lot of what the corporations give us has stripped us of our self-love self and mainly of our dignity. So I want to ask you, in your travelling around, 
I mean, what you describe about the people in Ladakh when you went there is, is pure, to me, it's pure dignity. So how do you participate and how can we participate in, uh, in growing dignity? Well, it's, it, the key is for, really, really is, I, I see it everywhere, the key is re-establishing deeper, authentic relationships with others. And what we don't realize is how we've been driven into a system where we're afraid to show who we really are. Mm-hmm. We're afraid to be vulnerable. Yeah. We're afraid to say, you know, the things are not going well because there's this idea we have to be perfect and perfectly happy. And we don't realize now, you know, particularly with the young, how the social media means that they're internalizing what previously the media did from the outside. Now they're using their Facebook pages to compete and show, oh, I'm having yeah. this wonderful time. And and it's quite clear now that even six-year-olds feel depressed, you know, when they get off Facebook. So part of it now is to be very aware of how these structures and systems have this speed and the technology is separating us further and further and to make much more conscious attempts to rebuild live face-to-face culture and deep connection to nature. And where it comes together so beautifully is in the local food movement, you know, where people often will be engaged in productive work as well as sharing together the work and it allows for a pace of, of connection that is, again, human. It allows for a, a, an intergenerational relationships like so many other activities don't. Right. Um, so I've, uh, you know, there was a 15-year-old boy in Australia who saw the economics of happiness and he became convinced that he wanted to become an ambassador for this. And he, when he joined a community garden, he said... I was so different. He he was the youngest in the community garden, but he found just such positive reinforcement and and a sense of self that was completely different from what he'd experienced, you know, in the nuclear family or in this monoculture at school that becomes structurally competitive. Mm-hmm. So the reconnection also requires a bit more of that big picture, stepping back really learning from indigenous culture. I like to talk about everyday indigeneity, mm. not just saying, oh, rites of passage, you know, which is a day or something in the whole life of a person, you know, just taking the ceremonies and the rituals, but thinking, you know, what was everyday life like? And there are certainly my book, Ancient Futures, does describe that to some extent. And there are other reports, usually from earlier uh, periods where people were able to spend a longer time actually living in non-Western cultures. There's, a, you know, there's a huge amount to learn from from the benefits of that more intergenerational, community-based, and nature-based way of life. Beautiful. I'm going to switch to economics again a bit. And there was one thing that I don't know if anybody brought up the conference because we didn't hear every lecture, but blockchain technology and cryptocurrency is really hot right now. And I feel like a lot of that is fueled by greed and um, a kind of shift in people who um, have a lot of technical skills and and savviness and see an opportunity to shift resource 
uh, and wealth from uh, who those who had power and wealth to kind of a techno elite. And but then there's this also this promise of decentralization, and yet we have um, mining cryptocurrency mining farms in China that are running in 102 degree weather uh, Fahrenheit in the U.S. And um, they are consuming vast quantities of energy just to be able to move money around so that people can explore this alternative system. And it feels like an ecological nightmare, and yet there's so much promise in the potential to reshuffle the deck if that can be done somehow technologically. Do you have a perspective on I do. I'm very glad that you're a bit skeptical. It's very worrying to me, the, the way it's being romanticized, and I think... Uh, the idea that it would genuinely decentralize power, I think, is extremely naive. I think, for again, a whole range of holistic, systemic reasons, this is not the right way to go. We need to relegate money to its right place. I don't think we need to do away with it completely, but it needs to be clearly a symbol of wealth. Now it's been turned into a complete make-believe tool for people who have a lot of power and when you have the power to create money and control the, the media and people's thinking uh, you, you've got you know, very very destructive form of centralization to decentralize would mean starting to relate the currency to real value to real resources and it really needs to be culturally relevant it needs to come back to a diversity of currencies and, you know, we, as we look at where we are today, you know, a meaningful shift is going to be to insist that the treaties that are deregulating global finance start changing into treaties to regulate. But again, you know, it's only going to happen if we get that people's movement, the civic society waking up. And, and some of this is a bit heady and econometric to think it through. Uh, and there may be other solutions uh, that meant perhaps, but I feel that those of us who are as old as I am know enough about the world to know that even when we had national currencies in the past, we did not have such a big gap between rich and poor. We did not have such enormous centralized powers and such powers of destruction. So I, to me, it makes much more sense to go back basically, and start giving empowering national currencies while simultaneously, with civic society pressure, decentralizing real power. Blockchain doesn't, you know, do, does not really even recognize the need for decentralization. I think, I mean, you know, once you, once you link it to real cultural and ecological realities, it's, a, I, I think, very simplistic and superficial view. I'm nervous about sounding so harsh about it because I know so many young people, particularly young men, who are very, very enthusiastic about it. Yeah. I, I just wish they would look at what happened to Bitcoin. I mean, you know, Bitcoin, how has that represented any real change in any way? But above all, it's this... It's the people who have an understanding of the, the benefits and the realities of, of ways of living closer to nature. 
you know, particularly people in the Western world who have an understanding of food and farming and the lifestyle that comes with it are more likely to understand what I'm saying. You know, people who've only had an urban existence and have been sort of caught up in that techno world, it's, it's harder for them to, to really comprehend what decentralization has to look like if we want to prevent the extinction of species. And it basically means if we want to survive. Yeah. You know, ultimately, you know, we're looking either at a path where we're going to go perhaps with a lot of idealism and blockchain, but continue moving away from nature in a way that we mean we're literally extinguishing our, our potential for survival. So what I'm talking about is a decentralization that understands the ecological realities, but also the human realities, the need for more human-scale structures and for more genuine empowerment uh, of human-scale structures. I like that answer. <laughs> I'd like to bring this conversation around by asking you, I'm very worried about what I see as the rise of fascism. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to ask you what you think of um, our not-so-distant future. Well, I, this is, again, I mean, why I'm working very hard to try to get out a different perspective. Uh, most people on the left and even in the green movements have not looked at the way that governments have ended up over-regulating small businesses and, and, you know, destroyed people's livelihoods and created this widening gap between rich and poor and... It's that insecurity that leads leads to these changes. It's what happened in the Nazi era, and it's what's happening now around the world. So the key is for us to understand that we must create a way of living where people can maintain their dignity and self-respect and have meaningful livelihoods. And I've really come to the conclusion that with men, when you take that away, when you take away their self-respect and their identity and their ability to provide for themselves and others, it's a recipe for violence. And Do violence, you mean men and women? No, I, men I, mean, I mean men I in particular. I think men in particular turn uh -huh. violent. I think women can become depressed right. and, and dis dysfunctional, but generally it's the men who are the, who are the drivers of the violence. So they'll often, you know, with that destruction of identity and livelihoods will turn on their own communities and their own children and you know in frightening ways right. but also every form of fundamentalism and violence and terrorism and and certainly neo-nazism right. and fascism it's driven particularly by the men it's particularly the men who, who drive it and particularly the young men um, you know that combination of testosterone and and this complete powerlessness is not yeah. a good mix. So again, why you know really looking at this urgent need for ecological as well as economic literacy? I say ecological, but I think I mentioned before also cultural, having some understanding of cultures that have worked rather than some abstract idea of of you know, a completely new form, of a new way of doing things based on some kind of techno fix. It, 
we're, we're, we're losing time, I think, if we run down that direction. Interestingly enough, even in my um, movement of more decentralist and localist thinkers, I've found that a lot of the men st- tend still to fixate a lot on, te- on techno fixes. And so even local currencies, I think, were over-emphasized mm. and have not worked that well. It's a lot of work. Yeah. yeah. Then they're really not working. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Would you tell us one enthusiasm and hope that you hold very dearly? Oh, yeah. Well, my greatest hope and what keeps me going is my absolute faith in human nature and nature. So I derive, you know, daily uh, satisfaction and and hope and joy from both from my relationship to nature, but also to the wealth of positive initiatives that are spreading around the world, and being plugged into that world of local grassroots innovation activity and seeing that it is happening is so. So wonderful and so positive. And I really hope that people will keep in mind that what we mean by the economics of happiness and big picture activism is not only understanding the bigger system, but being much clearer about the fact that there is so much good news out there that we are not getting. And we need to be we need to be doing both. It's not enough to just plug into the the networks of good news and stay there because we also need clarity about the bigger system and the need to transform it. In other words, we need both political change and community change as well as personal transformation. I feel that in our economics of happiness message, we have a very holistic view that can help us shift at all three levels simultaneously. Thank you so much, Helena. Thank you. It's been an honor to be with you. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much for doing it. <laughs>